0: Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate
1: the social media jungle. And now, here's your host, Michael Stelzner.
0: Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today, I'm going to be joined by Ted Rubin, and we're going to explore how to develop relationships with social media that ultimately lead to business. And if you don't know who Ted is, he's the author of the book Return on Relationship. Now, before we get into the interview, I want to share some tips on actually relationship marketing and in particular, in-person relationship marketing. I just got back from New Media Expo, also known as Animax. And the first thing I want to say is it was totally crazy to meet so many of you, the listeners, and what tripped me out, just completely freaked me out, (laughs) was the fact that people were walking around saying, hey, I hear Mike Stelzner's voice. Where is he? They'd never seen my face. Now in the the world of social media, that's not normal because obviously my face is on my Twitter account and Facebook page, but it was really, really weird. And being a new podcaster, uh, I thought it it was exciting, but I also had a hard time processing it. So... I just wanted to, first of all, say thank you so much, because so many people came up to me and told me how much they love this show. One of the things we don't hear often as podcasters is from the guests, because a lot of times you guys are out running, or you're on a tractor, or you're on a road trip, so I received the message loud and clear that, and I just want to say thank you to you for listening, um, second thing was, which was awesome about my experience at New Media Expo, was that I was so embraced by fellow podcasters that are much more experienced and much more mature. And it was extremely humbling, very, very encouraging. And if you're listening right now and you are a podcaster that's been doing this for a while, thank you so much for your work. And thank you for inspiring and encouraging me to continue to do this podcast. Now, I did not announce that I was going to be there because I was on a mission. And I think by the time you're done hearing what I'm about to share with you, you'll understand why I didn't tell anyone I was going there. And my hope is that you'll be inspired by the story that I'm about to share with you and that you'll try some of this for yourself. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. So what I'm about to talk about has to do with how to build relationships in person that often start online. So let me give you a little bit of backstory. In my second book, Launch, I talked about the power of other people. And I coined this phrase called the elevation principle. And the way it goes is great content plus other people minus marketing messages equal growth. So for example, great content could be your blog post. It could be your podcast. The other people uh, includes the listeners like you, but a sub segment of those other people are what I call uh, power users, if you will, or people with extreme influence. And I've got a a phrase for them, and I can't even remember what it is, and you'd think I'd remember since I wrote the darn book. But the point is that without other people, it's really, really hard to grow your business. And I would not have millions of people reading Social Media Examiner today if I had not focused on building the right relationships very, very early when we started Social Media Examiner. Of course, it's not just relationships, it's content plus relationships. But today I'm going to really focus on how to build the right relationships with the right people and kind of the power that can come from that. Here's a word from our tour guide. So, why did I go to this conference? I went there really with two purposes. Number one is I wanted to build relationships into the podcasting community because I'm a newbie there and a lot of folks don't know me there. And I really feel like I'm part of this club now, but I want to get to know the players and I want to get to know what the space is like. And I knew a lot of podcasters were going to be at this conference. The second thing is I wanted to build relationships with folks in the parenting space. And I knew there were going to be some of them there. And the reason I wanted to do that is because if, if you're new to the show, I've got another uh, project called mykidsadventures.com, which is my passion project for helping parents. Um, have fun activities to do with their kids that are non-electronic. So you can check that out at mykidsadventures.com. So so when I went to the show, I had a very specific list of people that I wanted to meet. I knew who I wanted to talk to, and I had them prioritized into different categories, like the podcasters and the the people in the parenting space. and And some of these people I really wanted to develop deeper relationships with. Some of them I had already met. I've talked to on the phone, or I've interacted with on social. Others I had never met before, and I just simply wanted to be on their radar. So, first thing I did was I decided to strategically attend the sessions of the people that I wanted to meet, and I, you know, paid attention. I sat up kind of near the front, and I took notes, and I was very attentive. And then at the end of the session, you know how this works, right? People tend to line up and talk to the, to the presenter. Well, I tend to like want to hang around and be the last person to talk to that person. And the reason I do that is because one of the things that I've learned a long time ago is that people tend to remember the very first thing and the very last thing um, that happens in any particular interaction. For example, with this podcast, people are very familiar with the intros and the outros. Yes, they remember the stuff in between, but it's the first and the last impressions that actually have a big, big impact. So oftentimes, I'm the guy hanging around, waiting for everyone else, and then I get a chance to talk to that person. Oftentimes, at that juncture, the person's walking somewhere else. I will walk with that person, and it's just a way for me to not just be another person standing in line. Now, I did not attend very many sessions. The vast majority of the time I was at this conference, I wandered the halls and the expo area. In this particular case, it was really about um, knowing, as having been a speaker, and I've hung up my speaking shingle. I- other than my own conference, I don't speak anymore. But over the years as a speaker, I began to realize that most speakers don't attend sessions. They hang out in the halls and or wherever the speaker room is or wherever these areas are. And they just kind of network and they talk with each other. So that's a tip to you. If you're going to a conference and you want to try to network with people, extremely high likelihood that the high profile presenters that you want to meet are not, um, you know, basically in the sessions that are not their own. They're likely hanging out in the halls. So I hung out in the halls and I had a great opportunity to have amazing, amazing conversations with so many people. Now, when I met these people, especially the ones that I had not met before, I just had conversations with them. I went up to them and I would say something like, hi, my name is Mike Stelzner. Uh, I'm the founder of Social Media Examiner and I just love, you know, whatever it is that they're doing. Sometimes they will say, oh my gosh, I'm familiar with you or your publication, but generally they're not. And I would ask questions like, you know, I would just engage them, like, tell me more about your story or how did you get started? Uh, I would ask them more about what they do. I would seek their advice, truly, because I want their advice. Because in many cases, I'm not really totally into the podcasting world yet, or I'm not totally into the parenting world. And I would even give advice because there's always something that you can add to someone else. So for example, a lot of these people want to they started talking with me and they learned a little bit about me um, they were intriguing or they were interested in what it was that maybe I could help them with and I would just share some of my thoughts with them I would ask them you know what's your next big thing um, how can I help you uh, is there anything I can do? Would it make sense to get you on my show so that I can help you get some more exposure? It's the kind of things that you do when you're really developing, you know, real relationships. And in some cases, I ask these people, "Hey, you want to go sit down and chat?" Because I could tell that they were interested, and I developed real relationships. These people, many of these people that I I met, I know that I can now call them friend, and I know that they can call me friend because I invested in this. I had many, many long sit-down relationships with folks like Michael Hyatt, Jason Van Orden, Joel Kamm, Lou Mangello, Eric Fisher, Dan Miller, Dave Taylor, and so many other people. And these are all, in many cases, people that I have not had extended, long, in-person conversations with and many of them I've never met before. So, I've been doing this for years. And the thing here is, like I said, this is one of the secrets to the success of my business. And this can be one of the secrets to the success of your business. And and the key thing here is that when you invest in other people, when you ask other people, how can I help you? Is there anything that I can do to help you? do that next big thing or anything I can do to help you get that word out about whatever it is you've got going on, your book or whatever. Um, That's how you become real friends with people. And I'll tell you what, when you invest in others, real opportunities can present themselves to you and to your business. Uh, Some of them include referrals, speaking gigs, cross promotions, and just so much more. So my take home lesson to you is to get involved in real life, face-to-face, IRL if they call it in in real life, encounters where people that you want to meet are going to be. And for me, the best place to do this is at conferences. And if you want to soon have an opportunity to do this, our upcoming conference, Social Media Marketing World, is a great place to start doing that. Alright, right, with that, let's move on to the interview with Ted Rubin. He's going to talk a lot more about how to develop relationships with social media that can lead to these types of offline interactions. Helping you simplify your social safari, here's this week's expert guide. I'm very excited to be joined today by Ted Rubin. If you don't know who Ted is, he's the co-author of an excellent book, Return on Relationship. He's also the former chief Social Marketing Officer for Collective Bias and Open Sky. And before that, he was the CMO for Elf Cosmetics. Ted, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, Michael, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So, today, Ted and I are going to explore how to develop real valuable relationships with social media. Ted, my first question with everybody following everyone on social channels, Are relationships still important and are they still achievable with social media? And if so, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, I like to say that relationships are the new currency. And whenever I make that statement, there's always somebody or a few people in the audience that will say, well, you know, come on, what are you talking about? Relationships have always been the currency. But for me, there's so much more so now because we can scale them at at, at such a dramatic pace and 24-7 without ever leaving our living room or even our bedroom. I mean, it used to be that, you know, you had to wait till either you were at a company or you went to meetings or you went to events where then you could really meet a lot of people. Um, but now, you can do this all the time. Now, to take it on the other side, where I think you were getting at a little bit, is that what's ended up happening, though, is relationships have been kind of taken a second seat to just people clicking your name or checking a box or saying I'm your friend or liking your brand, and people thinking that that's the real relationship, and it's not. And that's where the problem has come in, where people are now thinking that all you have to do is click a button, and that's a relationship, but it's not. The, the, the Relationships are no different than they ever
0: So, Ted, there are so many people that um, are following me on Twitter, or I'm following on Twitter, or are quote unquote friends with me on Facebook, and they'll think because they sent me a tweet once that um, for whatever reason, there is a real relationship there. And they'll go from just having followed me on Twitter to asking outrageous things from me, which obviously we both know is not a relationship. So let's talk about this a little bit. What do people get wrong when it comes to actually building of the relationship on social media?
1: Well, you know, I think where the problem comes in, Mike, is that because it's so easy to connect with people, people have come to believe, and a lot of this has been taught to them by quote-unquote social media experts or gurus, and I want to make one thing clear before we go on. I don't call myself a guru or an expert. I'm just a guy with opinions who 's not afraid to test them out for myself and and, and speak about them and, and voice those opinions so what I think's happened is a lot of people think like hey you know let's get as many likes as we can for our brand or let's get as many p- friend people to follow me on Twitter or like my Facebook because then I can broadcast to them and you know truth be told, there are a lot better ways to broadcast than there are via these channels, so the p- thing that people are missing is that You know, I say this a lot and people say it's common sense, but the truth, what happens is, this is no different than regular relationships. When you meet someone at a party, you don't meet them, shake their hand, call them up the next day and say, can you take care of my kid? Or, can you introduce me to your boss because I want to sell you a multi-million dollar deal? No. You get to know them. You ask them out for coffee. You, you build a relationship. And what happens is we have to start doing that online. And too many people are thinking, like just like you said, that the click of a button, that friend request or that follow on Twitter is the relationship itself. And it's not. You have to start doing what I call looking people in the eye digitally. And. Let's and talk about
0: that a little bit. Yeah. Cause you, you do, you do talk about that. I know you recently wrote a blog post about that. So how can we, you know, looking people in the eye digitally implies giving them our full attention with social media. So talk a little bit about how can we do that?
1: well the, look it's it's no different than when you meet somebody. I mean we don't give them all full attention for the rest of the day but if you're if you're good whether you're on a date or you're meeting or you're on an interview or you're meeting a business person or you, or even the hardest way to do it is at a conference when there's lots of people passing by that you want to speak to, but if you're good at it, you know the people and you've met them who you feel like even when there's a thousand people around you, when they're talking to you, there's nobody else in their world. they are totally focused on you. Now, truth be told, there's easy ways to do this in digital, and it's actually easier because I can be looking away, but someone doesn't have to know that. So the way I believe you do that is you look at their profile. You read something about them. The simplest way is to call them by name. I mean, I like to talk to audiences, and when I, when I'm in front of a lot of people, I say I want to tell you about the best social media book ever written, and nobody here in the room is going to guess it. And you know, they all are guessing books by Chris Brogan or Brian Solis or Charlene Lee, and I go, no, I'll give you a clue. It was written in 1936, and it's called How to Win Friends and Influence People by what a Dale Carnegie. Great Carney. book, great book. And it's a it's an amazing book, and and the most important part is it talks how to connect with people, and one of his statements is, there's nothing, no word in any language that people like more than the sound of their own name. So the first thing you have to do is look to what people's names are. Don't go by their, their tag necessarily. Find out, look, click through and look at their, at their profile. See where they live. Everybody puts that in there. I'm from New York. I'm from Park City. I'm from San Diego. I mean, if I see someone from Park City that might, when, when they retweet me or they make a comment, I'll reply back to them and say, hey, George, nice to meet you. By the way, I love to skate. Now, right away, this guy knows. I didn't just make that comment randomly. I must know he lives in Park City. And I call him by name. And, you know, I I tell everybody to have their names easily accessible on their profile. You're not protecting your privacy by not having it there. But sometimes I like when it's not there because then when I dig for it and I come back with their name, the person says, wow, this guy really made an effort to find out who I am. And it's just little things, little comments about what they do. So, you know, you're not not—you're clearly not as old as I am, Mike, but I'm sure you were trained a little bit more like I was because you're not a young kid. And and you were taught, like, when you first met people, when you went to someone's office, what's the first thing you do? Now, I don't know if you have sales training. My first training was sales. And I personally have a little bit of a prejudice. I think the best marketers are former salespeople because salespeople, if they're good, they learn how to observe and they learn how to listen first. So the first thing I do when I go into someone's office is I look at what's on their desk, what's on their walls, what college did they go to. Are they a grandparent or a parent? Did they ski? Do they do they golf? Do they do they fish? Anything that can give me something that I can make a comment or bring up that'll help me connect with them. Now think about this in a digital aspect. We have all these tools at our at, at our uh, availability. Like LinkedIn, whether it be LinkedIn, yeah. Facebook. I mean, there is no excuse if you don't know something about the person you're talking to. And and here's where I in it to. And by the way, if you want to move on to the next question, you're welcome to come No, no, on. keep
0: going. You're on a roll.
1: Okay, but you, know, you ever hear the expression, I'm sure you have, I wish I could be a fly on the wall in that meeting or in that house or to hear that conversation? Well, guess what? We're all being invited. To be flies on the wall in people's living rooms they're inviting us into their Facebook pages I mean everything is there about their lives their personalities their families and and even if not there there's ways to Google it there's on LinkedIn there there are apps on the on the on the phone now I have an app called refresh and it lets me every time before a meeting it goes it, it connects with my, with my contacts file. It connects with my LinkedIn, my Facebook, and it tells me details about that person, the things that are in their LinkedIn profile, maybe a last comment or post they made. I mean, so when you do these things, it not only gives you insight into who they are, but it gives you the ability to let them know that you care and that you're actually paying attention to them.
0: What was the name of that app again? Refresh? Refresh. Now let me ask. Let me just throw in a couple thoughts here. First of all, for those that are listening right now that um, are managing a brand page, like for example, uh, Social Media Examiner has. We have our own Twitter account. Just by simply saying the name of the person, we do this all the time. That is like a big deal because most people just you know on Twitter reply with the least amount of words, by just simply saying hey, Mike, you know, or hey, Ted, or whatever, that's like, boom, a step up from the competition. But I think another thing, Ted, that um, someone could do is if the person that you're trying to build a relationship with happens to have a blog, why not go see what they're blogging about, right? And why not, when you send them a message, just somehow reference something about what they've just blogged about? Like you just blogged about um, looking people digitally in the eye. And I decided to work that into my Q&A, but you got ahead of me. (laughs) But that's a way, that's a way for me to at least have a little bit of insight so that when I am, you know, interacting, whether it be in an interview, whether it be email or whether it be social, that we're ahead of the game. And these little tiny steps are not, you know, obviously to, to use a first name is brainless. Everyone should do it. To take it the next step and actually look up a little bit more about their profile, Ted does take time. And how do you decide, Ted? I'm sure some people are, are asking this question. How do you decide who to do a little research on and who not to when you're dealing with you know, tens of thousands of followers and interactions. What's, what's the litmus test, Ted?
1: Well, you know, truth be told, I probably do it a little bit too much. So like I almost never reply to a tweet without checking someone's name, without just clicking on a button in TweetDeck deck or in Hootsuite. Oh, oh God, sorry. I just fell. Are you okay? <laughs> I'm fine.
0: We have our first fall on the podcast folks. <laughs> 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 I might, edit, I might keep that in. <laughs>
1: feel free (laughs) Uh, and here I am recovered immediately ready to go so what I was saying is I try to do it with almost every interaction at the very least like I won't just reply to Michael because your handle says Michael I will click on your handle to make sure you don't refer to yourself as Mike Ah. or, or just the little things that let people know you're looking And I have to tell you that just I I know that it's only a minor thing, but it's it's something that most everybody doesn't do. These are things that will set you apart. I respond to everybody by name. Nobody else does. I mean, it's such a simple thing. And you have no idea how far it goes. In, in that simple tweet where, yes, that isn't someone you have time to go really dig in. But when I do dig in is when someone makes it a little bit more difficult for me. I mean, I've gone as far as going to bloggers' blogs, going to their about section, and even going through some of their posts trying to find somewhere where they'll mention their name. Because some of these people, I, it's beyond me why they do this. I know, it's crazy. Um, <laughs> they want people to, to respond to them. They want to grow their following, but then they don't want them to know their name because they think that they're protecting their privacy. The, the tip I'd like to give to your audience, And I know because you do have a lot of small businesses, there is no such thing as privacy anymore. The bad guys can find out anything. They can hack in and get any information they want. They don't need you to tell it to them. It's the good guys, the customers, the brands, the marketers, the vendors, the people that you do want to hear from who have trouble finding out who you are and more importantly, won't make that extra effort. They'll go for the low-hanging fruit and they'll reach out to the small business or the blogger or the social media consultant who they can find out about right away. And then the other myth that's out there is a lot of bloggers think that, why does a brand have to know where I live, my audience is national? Well that's nonsense, they want to know if they're in their town, can they meet you? If there's an event locally, can they use you? They also just want to know where you're from because it has to do a lot with your outlook on what you're writing about, potentially an outlook on their brand and where they have locations or where they offer their products. So I just think that's really important. And I just don't think it's that hard to do. Ted, and again,
0: let me pause yeah. you for a second, cause I want to add a little bit here. I think it's important folks to make sure that you have a little personal something in your social profiles. For example, I say that I'm a dad. Um, and I think I also share what my religion is. Just subtle little things, because um, in in a world where there's millions of people like Ted and me, by sharing a little bit of something personal about yourself, that's going to allow you to to stand out and it's going to allow you to be remembered. And so many people don't do that. Instead, they just, you know, basically they fall into this product marketing mentality, which is they talk about what they do instead of who they are. And what I think Ted is saying here is people want to know who they're working with. Is that right, Ted?
1: Absolutely. You know, look, I go to one extreme. I share everything in my personal life. Um, I want people to know, like you said, I want them to know not only am I a dad, but I'm a divorced dad. I want them to know that uh, to a certain degree that I, that I made a major effort to keep my daughters in my life, that they come first before everything. I want people to know that because if I have to cancel being on your podcast because something my daughter calls me and Michael's going to say, oh, of course you do. Like, I, I know that's the most important thing to you. You're not going to say, what do you mean? I've never even seen you mention that you have kids. So, And I also think that people today, it's very different than when you used to be able to separate work and personal. It's all merged together now. People want to know who you are as a person because that also goes into how they evaluate you.
0: Ted, you coined the phrase return on relationship. Can you explain, first of all, why you coined the phrase and what were you hoping to accomplish with that phrase?
1: Okay, well, if you don't mind, I'm just going to make one correction. I started using the phrase and when I first started using it, I thought I coined it. Because I had never heard it before, at least I didn't know I'd heard it before. Subsequently, when I started using it all the time and got ready to write the book, I did a little research and I found that back in 2001, there was a white paper written called Return on Relationship. Mm. Uh, it was a different time. Information didn't spread as quickly. It's very difficult to find. You have to dig pretty deep in the pages. Maybe that's because I've, pr- I've produced so much content that it's found its way w- very far down. So, what I, instead of saying I coined it, I like to say I started using and evangelizing the term in 2009.
0: But now, why did you decide to start using it?
1: Well, you know, I was at Elf Cosmetics, eyeslipsface.com, and this is a family-owned business that had no marketing budget when I joined them. Um, And, you know, some people say, why would you join a company, a CMO, with no marketing budget? And for me, it was a challenge. I mean, anybody can spend hundreds of millions of dollars on media and ad campaigns. But to have to take what they had at that time, they had built... To about ten million dollars in business over three or four years, they had a list of about six hundred thousand women who were in their database, and I saw a great opportunity here to um, do co-promotions, to, to to promote with with large brands, uh, and take an aspirational product and, um, and a. Um, um, an audience of women, expand on it, leverage social media. So while I was there, we ended up growing that list to 2.4 million, and we used it to grow the largest presence for a cosmetics company online in the early days of social before the likes of Estee Lauder and Lancome and Sephora were were kind of allowed by their legal teams to to do this kind of stuff. But even with all of that, and I was at a family-owned business that would let me try anything as long as they didn't have to pay for it, Um, and and, and there was no legal team, I still had owners who would say, to me, okay, well, this is really cool, but when are you going to start doing something that's going to lead directly to revenue? Like, when can we track it the way we do our email campaigns and, and our and our search campaigns? And I, I had to find a way to get these people to understand what I was doing. And when you use words like like and, and follow and advocacy, it's hard to get through to people in the C-suite, even at a family-owned business. And truth be told, um, I, I one day I just had this idea, and I said, you know, this isn't about return on investment. This is about relationships. This is about the return you'll get by building relationships. And then I tweeted out, and this is back when people thought I had a lot of followers and I think I had 2000 followers. And I tweeted out return on, it's, you know, it's not about, it's not just about return on investment. It's about return on relationship, ROR. And I got 20 retweets in a matter of 15 minutes.
0: Wow. How long ago was and, this? Just out of curiosity. I'm sorry. What year was this?
1: This was two thousand and either the end of 2008 or the beginning of 2009.
0: Gotcha. So this is early days in social media.
1: Early days. I only had a couple thousand followers, maybe even less than a couple thousand. And you know, and I do this even now. I try things, and when it hits a chord, I jump into it with both feet. And I said, holy cow, I'm onto something. So I started tweeting this. I started writing some things about it. And then... Again, I'm in front of the owners who say to me, what's the deal? When are we going to be able to start direct marketing on these channels? They, they, all they want to do is send out offers the way they do in, in, um, it, it, with their email. And we had a very successful email marketing program there for a small company. We were bringing in half a million dollars a month. And, and I looked at them and I, I, I looked at the social presence as if it was mine. Like this was my baby. And I'm like, you are not sending out offers to my, to my social media people. Like not yet. We're not ready. And then I looked at them. I said, this is, and I just blurted it out. I said, guys, this is not about return on investment. This is about return on relationship. And I had these two hard nosed owners just stop, look at me and go, can you explain that a little? Like, that sounds kind of cool. And I said, well, this is about relationships. It's about people sharing. It's about all the people that have talked about we're a word of mouth company. How did you build this company even before social media? You got articles written about in papers. You had friends talking to friends. When people called to complain on customer service, you gave them extra products so they could give it out to their friends. Uh, and they looked at me and they said, return a relationship. You know, I like that, makes sense. And that's when I really knew I had something because not only did it ring true with the people on social media, but to two guys that were you know, paying my salary and worried about how they're going to grow their company, all of a sudden they, they were backing off and saying, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Let, let's see where this goes. And I, I, at the time, I had just built the first aggregated um, content site. For, uh, for any publisher uh, that I know of. I mean, definitely the first in the cosmetics industry. And we launched it at the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, and it sucked in all content where somebody mentioned Elf Cosmetics. Mm. A- and so, in other words, instead of having a contest or trying to get people to make videos for us, all these women had to do was have cosmetics, make a video, post it into YouTube, and we would automatically suck it in and show it to our 250000 a month blogger um, blog visitors, and we had one of the first blogs in the space. We had an incredibly active blog because we didn't just blog about beauty; we blogged about New York lifestyle. We, ha- I-, I got mom bloggers to start blogging for us about all different topics, and you know, it just really connected.
0: Can you tell me in in a very simple um, phrase what exactly is? I mean, feel free to expand, of course, but what exactly is a return on relationship today? What is the possible outcome for those that are listening that can happen when you invest in relationships?
1: First of all, just to, to put it into really easy phrasing, you know, relation, return on relationship, simply put, is the value that's accrued by a person or a brand due to nurturing a relationship. You know, I like to say that ROI, return on investment, is simple dollars and cents. And return on relationship, or ROR, is the value both perceived and real, that you'll accrue over time through connection, loyalty, recommendations, and sharing. And then when I try to put it really simple, I say return on investment is dollars and cents, and ROR, return relationship, is about people, it's about connecting. It's about becoming that small, and I think we're going this way again, in that people want to know who own the companies. They want to know what their responsibilities are. They want to know, are they taking care of the environment? What are they putting in their food? It's like the corner stores, the way it used to be. We're kind of having a reversal where we're going back to that day where you wanted to know, you know, Irv behind the counter serving you your meat, or the person who you'd walk in and you came in maybe for chicken, but he said, Michael, you got to try the ribs today. They're fabulous. And that's because he knows something about you. And, you know, we have all these potentials for personalization, for data collection. And unfortunately, what they're mostly being used for is to just jack up and sell you more instead of to do what I say is sell you better. Sell you not effectively as much for the brand, but more effectively for the consumer, because in the end, that'll be more effective for the brand.
0: Ted, can you share any brands or success stories that you've seen in the last year that are doing this really well?
1: Well, you know, look, people that have heard me speak hear me say this all the time. I'm a huge fan of JetBlue. Um, I, I love what they do because they do it right from the basics of social. They're not selling anything. They're not selling airline tickets. They're not solving problems. They are not, a plane is not taking off the runway because you and I with all our followers are bitching on a flight. If, they, if the tower is not letting them take off, they're not going. But what they're doing is is they're listening. They're hearing. I mean, think about this from a Mars Venus. I, I, you know, you've heard of the book Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Absolutely. I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in it. We speak differently, we hear differently. You and I say one thing to our wives, and we mean it one way, and they take it a completely different way. And we've all learned that. And women know that, although it's very hard for us to get it together. I like to say that brands are from Mars and consumers are from Venus. Uh-huh. Brands are saying one thing, and consumers are hearing it another way. And really, consumers are very much like women. They want to be heard. I mean, truth be told, and you and I have experienced this, as many men, is that when we can bring ourselves to just pay attention, to really listen to our wives, not, not solve their problems, not fix it, just hear what they're saying and let them know that we have concern and that we care, it takes us way farther than cutting them off halfway through and saying, here, here's how you fix it, now leave me alone. And the same goes for brands. You know, a JetBlue is not going to find your baggage that's lost when you tweet the Twitter team, uh, the social team. But what they are going to do is let you know that they care, that they're listening, that they're doing the best they can. And then when they can help you, they will help you. So – you know, to me, they're doing a remarkable job. And, and one of the reasons it goes to this is that JetBlue had serious problems in, back in 2007 to 2009 with, with air, planes getting stuck on the runway. And their their reputation took a major hit. And every PR company in the world and agency wanted to work with them to rebuild their brand, to, to do PR, to write, get write-ups in magazines, to buy big billboards to say JetBlue is fixing all their problems. But they made a critical decision. They decided to continue with what they were doing in the social media area. They expanded their team from a few, To I think they now have over 30 on their team that watch every mention about JetBlue in every social media space, and they respond to people, and they interact with people. And they do what I used to do at Elf, and I tell every brand to do, is they openly seek out critics, because critics very often – now, there's a difference, by the way, I want to make it between haters and critics. Haters hate, and there's really not much you can do with them. But critics are usually very valuable because they're telling you something that's wrong. And most often, they're complaining for a lot of other people. So JetBlue likes to say that if one person's complaining, there's a good bet there's 150 with the same complaint. And if they listen to it, help resolve it, just pay attention. And they do it, social- they do it publicly, not in direct messages, not via email then everybody gets to participate. So I think they're doing a tremendous job. Um, I think Dwayne Reed is doing a fabulous job. Now I, I just want to be open up front. Um, myself, uh, when I was at Collective Bias, um, and Collective Bias helped build um, the social presence of Dwayne Reed. When we started with them back in uh, 2011, they had 900 Twitter followers. They now have close to 1.7 million. Um, And and, uh, I don't think we have time in this in this podcast to get into how we did that or what our strategy was. Um, But most importantly, because not, you know, a lot of people think you can duplicate one strategy somewhere else. It was about listening. It was about combining assets across different social media channels. It was about creating content and it was about listening to audience and seeing what mattered to them. And what mattered to them was not the latest deal at the pharmacy or what was being offered, you know, how much how, how expensive toilet paper was. But we found out very quickly that people relate Duane Reed since it's a, a tri-state area, New York-based chain, to New York and New York lifestyle. And we listened. And now they respond, they follow back people that follow them to the, to the best they can. Since it's gotten a little bit out of hand now, it's hard to follow back 1.7 million people. Not that, truth be told, not that you can't, it's just the, mat, the time it takes to do it along Twitter's ways where they allow you to only follow about 300 a day. Do the math. Right. And, and, and especially since they're growing by more than that every day, it's difficult. But they're doing a tremendous job because they're building relationships. They're not selling. If you go in their feed, sure, you'll find offers, maybe one every 100, 150 tweets, but most of what you're finding is engagement and interaction. So I think they're doing a fabulous job. And there's a lot of brands. i got to tell you that American and Delta have made major strides after seeing the success of, of JetBlue. And and I, I admire them for that because I've seen so many brands that think it's wrong to copy a competitor who's doing a good job because then it's not their strategy. Well, if they're doing it right, especially in this social media world, why wouldn't you want to do what they're doing?
0: Ted, so, let, Ameri- yeah, go ahead. I'm No, sorry. go ahead. No, that's awesome. Let me ask you this question. Um, earlier you were talking about how sometimes critics can – I I think you kind of were alluding that critics can sometimes be turned around and I wanted to go down the the road of brand advocates and I wanted to know, um, can you talk about the importance of, of getting people to advocate for your brand and, um, what can, you know, consumers who love the brand do for us? Can you elaborate a little bit more on brand advocates?
1: You know, today I think that there's not one of us that doesn't value more, um, a, a, a recommendation or a comment made by people we know. And by the way, now as as we both expressed, people we know has expanded dramatically. So it's not just the guy you know who lives next door to you or the people you know at the PTA or the people you see at work every day. It's now all these people that you're building relationships with via social media. And sometimes by the way, you know, a lot of the relationship building and the interaction happens in a way that I call vicariously, meaning it doesn't have to be a direct conversation. It can be people listening to you and I talking. It can be people watching a Twitter feed where you and I have a conversation. It can be, 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 be people who I call lurkers, who are just visiting your Facebook page every day, and they see that you know Ted's in Costa Rica with his 60-year-old daughter, and then he's at a business meeting you know, with, with people at Mary Kay, and, and they're getting a feel for who I am, and they start building a trust that way so for me advocacy is all about people sharing people making recommendations and we've seen how important reviews are today but i think that more important than reviews because you know reviews everybody knows a game to a certain degree people tend to make them when they're when they're happy or they're angry There's this hard to get middle-of-the-road ones but it's the comments people are just making to their friends via their social media and that advocacy is so important and the best way to build that in my humble opinion is by being a friend to people, to, to, in other words, answering their questions, admitting when you make a mistake, um, talking to them when you can't fix the problem, but explaining why. So everyone, a lot of people know about my experience with JetBlue. I won't go into the whole story, but the point of it was that they couldn't solve my problem, but they engaged me. And then I gave them kudos for that because I really respected the fact that they responded to me. And then when I had questions of why can't we take off or what's going on, they didn't just say because we can't they said, because there's a problem with the baggage and we need to fix that before we can get on. Well, why can't you fix it? Well, it's a lot more complicated than you know. Well, why is it more complicated? And they explained it to me instead of just giving me those answers that we used to get from our dad or our mom saying, because I said so.
0: How do we, let's just say we know who some of our most, um, biggest fans and advocates are because they're constantly, you know, interacting with us. Is there any particular things we can do to empower brand advocates to help them? What, what, uh, absolutely. Talk I mean, about that.
1: For, first of all, I think it's really important to let them know that you're hearing them. You know, not to just read what they say, but to repeat what they say. To take some of their suggestions, even if it means doing a little thing. When I was at Elf, we we would go out there and listen to people suggest colors we should use, and sometimes, you know, and against the the the. My operations people didn't love this because, of course, they wanted to keep everything controlled. But I'd say, you know, people recommended we should use a burnt R. And so let's just do it and say, hey, we got this from Michael. You know, and he recommended it. And then people go, wow, I can't believe the way these guys are listening. And then the pushback I got was, well, we can only do that once or twice a year. How much difference is it going to make? And and my explanation was it's going to make the world a difference because not everybody expects us to take their ideas. But once they see us take one person's, it's like the lottery. They think, hey. Next time it could be me. And they're much more apt to do that. So that's one way to do it. Another thing is to... Help them, again, to look for critics, to solve problems, to every once in a while actually step up and do something that fixes a problem someone has that maybe we couldn't normally fix, that gives them a place to voice it, that allows them to easily share. I mean, and another thing that most companies are overlooking, and, and I know there's a lot of talk about this today, which is great, because I talk about it a lot. I call it return on employees. Empower your, your employees so they power your brand. But that employees can and should be your best advocates. So make it easy for them to do that. There's companies out there like Dynamic Signal that are doing a major, a fabulous job at helping companies do a couple of things. Number one, help their help your people build their personal brands so that if and when they are happy with something you're doing, they they, they have an audience to, to share it with. Mm. And, and not be afraid of them having an audience or that, oh, it'll take the time away from their work. But encourage them and encourage them by saying, This is for you. We're not asking you to do anything in return. But then give them a platform where it's easy to share stuff for the company that, that makes them happy, but they're not pushed to do it, they're not made to do it. Maybe they're incentivized in some ways, maybe they're not, but it makes it it easy. Ease of use is the most important thing. Make it easy for your advocates to share something. Give them coupons to share. Let them talk about you. Give them a place where they can talk about you on your platforms. You know, I tell brands all the time, everybody's worried about what's happening on their Facebook pages. Why aren't you going to the Facebook pages of the people that are following you? of your fans. I talk to rooms full of of marketers, VP level and above, hundreds of them at a time. I will ask when there's 200 people in a room, how many people here, either themselves or some of their employees, go to the actual Facebook pages of the people who are following you or who you're...
0: I'm guessing nobody does, right?
1: I don't get one hand raised in the damn room. And I go, you know, all you guys are being pitched all this nonsense by agencies about how important it is what they're doing on your page. When you go to, you know how how great it is when you make a comment on someone who's following you's page. And it does scale because you have hundreds of employees. Pick 10 at a time. Tell them every day to go to 10 people's pages and make a comment, have a conversation, or just see what they're talking about and report it back to your marketing team.
0: This is brilliant. Then
1: you really know what they're interested in.
0: And it's not hard to do on Facebook because you can actually comment as the brand on somebody else's wall.
1: Oh, my God. And you know, I want to tell you something. People of influence, especially bloggers, oh my God, they go crazy for that. They're like, oh my God, Delta commented on my page or oh my God, you know, (laughs) Burt's Bees said they like what I was writing and then they start talking about it. So these are ways to empower advocates just by paying attention To them. Look, it goes back to Dale Carnegie. Tell people you like what they're wearing. I mean, you watch me. And look, I'm upfront about this, but I'm doing it with all sincerity. You watch me at an event. Almost every person that I talk to, I tell them, and and not just the women, by the way, the men too. I like your shoes. Wow, that's a great tie. You know, uh, uh, and yes, people do wear bow ties. More than regular times these days. You, you, you know, do you ever watch the show American President, the movie with Michael Douglas? I, and no, and he, his so. wife had died. He's living in the White House with his daughter. He's going on his first date. And, and she says to him, Dad, tell her you like her shoes. Women love when you tell them you like their shoes. I want to tell you something. Women love Michael when you tell them you like their shoes.
0: I'll have to keep that in mind. <laughs> My wife's generally walking around barefoot, but I know. <laughs> I know. So, for... tell
1: me, so tell me that you like the colored nail polish.
0: You there can. you go. <laughs> well, Ted, um, you have shared an enormous amount of ideas uh, and examples, and I'm hoping a lot of people that are listening right now are going to go try some of this stuff. But if people want to discover more about you and your book, Return on Relationship, where would you like to send them?
1: Well, you know, the best place to go is tedrubin.com, dot com, which is my which is my my blog. There's also I also have a site ReturnOnRelationship dot com if you want to see some stuff more specific to Return On Relationship. And it's as simple as googling Ted Rubin. I almost everything that comes up is about me. I will tell you, I am not the World War Two Medal of Honor winner.
0: <laughs> and it's R U B I N, just in case anybody's wondering. Hey, Ted, really appreciate you taking time out of your uh, your day to uh, share some of your insight with us.
1: Uh, it's my pleasure Mike I'd love to do it anytime
0: well, I hope you enjoyed that interview there is a few more things that I would like to share with you well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and um, you know technical glitches happen all the time and what you may not know is my interview with uh, Ted Rubin we got uh, disconnected like four times and I sewed the whole thing together and hopefully you couldn't tell that's the beauty of audio well um if there was anything that we mentioned in today's show that you did not catch, we take the show notes for you. All you have to do is visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash 77. You'll find all the links, all the notes. You can leave comments. You can interact with me there, socialmediaexaminer.com slash 77. This does bring us to the end of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelsner. I'll be back next week. I hope you make the absolute best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world.
1: The social media marketing podcast is a production of social media examiner.
0: Hey, just a quick reminder, join the social media marketing society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.